From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Democrats have been in control of state government for a while now. As the midterm election draws closer, the chair of the state Republican Party says that's not truly who Coloradans are. If you look at polling, voters are saying they want to bring balance back to Colorado. One party control of our state is not representative of the independent minded thinking that Coloradans share. Then demonstrators head to court over police conduct during the George Floyd protests. I feel like through this case, we have the opportunity to say, you know, Denver, we stand for better. And later, the musical and spiritual legacy of jazz great Ron Miles. I think we have to do everything we can to go out there and recognize and respect each other. I'm Mark Flynn, and I donated my car to CPR. It wouldn't go into first gear anymore, but it was running. The process was just as described, seamless, easy and allowed me to make my first significant gift to Colorado Public Radio. Selling a car requires posting information, responding, haggling with would-be buyers. That sounded like a hassle to me. It was more important to me to make an investment in Colorado Public Radio. It's easy to donate your car. Just go to CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Republicans believe the wind's at their back in this year's midterm elections, hoping to win back control of Congress. It may be a taller order for the GOP to wrest control of state government, which is entirely led by Democrats. Yet as gas prices and crime rates climb, the state Republican Party chair, Christy Burton-Brown, sees opportunity. And Christy, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I'd like to start with Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters, who was indicted this week on 10 counts related to an election security breach. She's also one of the Republican candidates running for secretary of state. You released a statement saying, quote, it is our belief that any Republican candidate indicted with felonies by a grand jury and who will be charged by a Republican district attorney should suspend their campaign while they undergo the legal challenges. Peters has responded with a defiant statement calling your reaction knee-jerk, also misspelling your name throughout her release. Um, Have you spoken to her? You know, Ryan, I have, and I'm going to let the statement that we made speak for itself. Speak for itself. All right. And you won't speak then to the conversation with Tina Peters? No, Ryan. I think we made it very clear that for the good of Republicans and conservatives everywhere, we need to focus on Republicans who can talk about the issues that voters are thinking about, inflation, cost of living, soaring crime in Colorado. Uh, that's what we need to focus on. And we've made our statement on Tina. Does it hurt the party if she stays in the race? Is that partly why you've asked her to leave or at least suspend? You know, Ryan, I think we're the party of law and order. That's why I made the statement that I made. I believe that our candidates need to show that they believe in our law and order system and can provide real solutions and solve problems for Coloradans across the state. In your statement, you note that she will be charged by a Republican district attorney. I do wonder, would you have drawn a different conclusion if it had been a Democratic DA? You know, Ryan, I'm not going to deal in hypotheticals. I think we are faced with the situation that we're faced with with Tina Peters. 
And what I'm really focused on is our state assembly is the next month. And we are so excited about the great slate of candidates we have running against Jared Polis, against Michael Bennett. We have no primaries in our attorney general, treasurer, and state board of education races, and some excellent candidates who are going to solve problems for Colorado. You talked about Republicans being the party of law and order. When you frame the notion of charges from a Democratic DA or a Republican DA, do you undermine law and order making that partisan distinction when it comes to district attorneys? You know, Ryan, it's a fact that the DA in Mesa County is a Republican. I think what's really important when we're talking about issues across Colorado is what voters are most concerned about. I do want to note that like a number of Republicans, including the former president, Donald Trump, Tina Peters claims falsely that she is fighting widespread election fraud. After the 2020 election, court after court after court found this not to be true. Here in Colorado, there are risk-limiting audits after the fact. How do you encourage Republican voters to participate in elections they may believe are fraudulent? Ryan, across the state, we're seeing Republicans step up to the plate and get involved in doing the things that empowered citizens can do. Empowered citizens can be poll watchers. They can be election judges. The only way to lose an election for sure is to not cast your vote. And this is what Republicans across the state have actually traveled to all 64 counties now. And Republicans all across Colorado are willing to get out there, make sure they cast their ballots, their friends cast their ballots. And then they're going to have their eyes in the room as poll watchers and election judges. And we should all want to see people acting as empowered citizens in that way. As the state GOP chair, are you trying to cool the rhetoric at all around false claims that the election was fraudulent? You know, Ryan, what I'm doing as the GOP chairman is encouraging our candidates and our volunteers and just great people across the state to talk about the issues that the average voter is concerned about. And that's it's not election fraud. What that is, is issues they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. People don't want to constantly dwell on the past. They want to dwell on the future and building a better future for Colorado together, solving the problems like the record high, you know, 25-year high in violent crime that's hurting our kids in our neighborhoods. They want to figure out how to solve the cost of living in Colorado, bring more affordable housing to our state, and really support our kids in more educational options. Those are the issues we're actually talking about in the Republican Party. I appreciate a distinction you made there saying that election fraud is not a kitchen table issue. If I'm to believe the press releases I get uh, sometimes hourly from uh, Mr. Trump, he doesn't seem to think that's the case. So is there a portion of the Republican Party that sees election fraud as a kitchen table issue? Are you saying that that's really just an outlier or what? President Trump is not on the ballot in 2022, Ryan. So what we're talking about as Republicans here in Colorado is the people who are on our ballot and the races we are voting on, which unfortunately isn't the president. The majority of Coloradans disapprove of Joe Biden and would like to see him get out of the White House. We don't have that choice in 2022. What we do get to choose is who's our governor, who's our U.S. senator, who's our attorney general, a new state board of education seat. And so What we are focused on is local Colorado races, Colorado issues, and stop with all the federalizing personality focus that the media wants to keep drawing us into. We are talking about the issues and Colorado in 2022. Okay, I'm not sure it's the media that's drawing people into that so much as the political figures, but um, I take your point. And let's let's talk about the issues. Indeed, 
uh, because as much as Colorado Republicans are running on messages of crime and affordability, these are also themes that Democrats are hammering as well. How do you differentiate? First of all, let's take the gas tax as an example. Right now, Jared Polis in his state of the state, he got up there and he tried to sound like a Republican. He said he wanted to save people money and postpone the gas tax that he campaigned for and signed into law last year when he wasn't up for re-election. Now that he's up for re-election, he wants to delay his own gas tax. Republicans want to actually repeal it and get rid of it permanently because it never should have passed in the first place. It was a one-party policy that is hurting average working families. And we see the same thing with crime, where Democrats back in 2014 decriminalized auto, auto theft and in 2019 decriminalized fentanyl. And we see Colorado being number one in the state in auto theft, uh, number two in the nation in fentanyl overdose deaths because of these Democrat-led, Democrat-run anti-victim policies that promote crime across our state. Let me just say, decriminalizing is a little bit of a generalization. In other words, it's still a crime to steal a car. And possession of fentanyl under a certain amount is a misdemeanor. Uh, but you think that those penalties should be stiffer. If Republicans were in charge, then you would make reforms in that arena? You know, Ryan, one of the definitions of decriminalize is actually to reduce the penalty. And that's exactly what the Democrats did, both on auto theft, seeing a similar trajectory with fentanyl, uh, no, Republicans would not have passed those policies. Quick fact check here. There was Republican co-sponsorship of the 2014 penalties bill. Our guest is state Republican Party chair Christy Burton Brown. Last year, Christy, Colorado's Republicans unveiled their message, their platform for Coloradans at a gas station, uh, hammering Democrats on gas prices. Uh, fast forward to now, given how tied that is to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is that a message the GOP will stick with? Oh, absolutely. Uh, average working families, Ryan, are hit with gas prices and grocery prices. I mean, you saw inflation go up to 7.9% today, a 40-year record high. And it is hitting families where it hurts all across Colorado. When we look at gas prices, you're right. We had our, our press conference at a gas station last August. The Democrats and the media largely made fun of us for it. And now what is everyone talking about? Exactly what we were talking about last August. Uh, gas prices that are crushing the average family. And gas prices increased by 48% well before the Russian invasion under Joe Biden and Jared Polis's Democrat policies that have cost our families more money every day in Colorado. Given how many factors contribute to both inflation and the cost at the pump, is it um, lacking nuance to put that entirely at the feet of a single or two politicians? I'll put it at the feet of the entire Democrat Party in Colorado. They, every single one of them can share blame for the policies that they have slammed through at the legislature, despite constant testimony from average citizens who've gone up to the legislature and practically begged their representatives not to pass these bills that would hurt our families and communities. And they did it anyway over the course of 10 years of Democrat control in our state. And that's why now if you look at polling, Voters are saying they want to bring balance back to Colorado. One party control of our state is not representative of the independent minded thinking that Coloradans share. I will point out that the gas tax hike never went into effect. It was not reflected in gas prices. As for inflation, if Republicans were in control, again, inflation is multifactorial. But what would a Republican uh, legislature or governor do? 
to bring inflation under control. You know, so there are so many solutions that Republicans would bring to bring inflation under control. I think they're outlined in a 44 bill package that our Republicans in the legislature laid out on the first day of session. Tax cuts and fee cuts, the repealing of multiple Democrat bills that have raised uh, prices and costs throughout Colorado. Uh, so anyone can actually go to ColoradoSenateRepublicans.com and read through that 44 bill package. And that's what we're doing as Republicans this year, not just complaining about what the Democrats have done. We all can see how they've devastated our state. We are providing actual solutions and being problem solvers on these issues. Devastated our state. You paint an almost apocalyptic picture of Colorado right now. You know, Ryan, 90 percent of Coloradans are worried that inflation is only going to continue to rise. Moms like me, I have two kids, an 11-year-old, and 8-year-old. We're worried about the ability to continue to put good food on our table to afford the gas we need in our cars. And you see the Democrats like Pete Buttigieg in Joe Biden's administration telling us all we should just go buy electric cars if we're worried about the cost that we're having to pay. That is completely elitist and out of touch. I don't know about you and everyone listening, but I don't have $56,000 to just go buy an electric car and hope that solves all my problems. Uh, The electric car comment uh, is a nice segue to talk about climate change. Christy Burton-Brown, she is chairwoman of the state Republican Party. Uh, There's concern, growing concern, polls show around climate change. We've seen prolonged drought, more extreme weather, the Marshall Fire, which was deadly and devastating. If Republicans were to gain control in Colorado, uh, would climate change be on the agenda? You know, Ryan, in our commitment to Colorado that you mentioned earlier, we presented at the gas station last August. One of the 10 key issues that we are focused on is conserving our environment. And we talk about that we are extremely concerned about having clean air, clean water for our children. We absolutely believe in conserving our environment, stopping wildfires, managing Colorado's water rights and keeping water here in Colorado where it belongs. I think the difference between our environmental policies and the Democrats, they continue to stomp down innovation. And we believe that innovation creates more answers on the energy front. I think the Russia, uh, their attack of Ukraine and everything that's involved in that also illustrates a difference in our parties. You know, Joe Biden is willing to go buy gas from Iran and Venezuela, more foreign dictators, instead of finding energy here at home in Colorado. Actually, under the Biden administration, there has been record oil and gas drilling on federal lands. Well, Joe Biden also shut down the Keystone Pipeline on his first day in office. And Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper voted against sanctioning the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which could have prevented Russia's actions in Ukraine. So basically, our Democrat senators from Colorado chose Russian oil over American oil. And I think that's very disturbing. Uh, So in a question where I ask about climate change, you say there needs to be more drilling domestically. Those two things are at odds. Square them for me. You know, Ryan, even Elon Musk, who created the electric vehicle, is out there saying, you know, despite the fact that we need to move to more clean energy in America, there's also the fact right now that we still do need oil and gas. And we we do have to get it from America. We need American energy independence. I'm not sure he invented the electric car, but an electric car for sure. Um, So candidates on the left and right 
are lining up to challenge Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert in the 3rd Congressional District, uh, which includes Grand Junction and Pueblo. What do you make particularly of the Republicans seeking to unseat a first-year incumbent? You know, Ryan, as the state party, we are neutral in primaries. And so I think that race will will play itself out. I think what's important for people to know as they consider that race is look at uh, Congresswoman Boebert's bills, the bills that she has sponsored in the legislature that really speak to the needs of her district. Um, CD3 is it's not a statewide office. It's specific to the Western Slope, wraps around a Pueblo, like you mentioned. And that district has some very specific issues dealing with forest management and wildfires and water rights. Congresswoman Boebert has um, written and proposed multiple bills that really seek solutions to those issues in her district. I think people should look into when they cast those votes. You're saying look at her bills. I wonder if that's instead of her behavior. Uh, There's a fairly long list of people Congresswoman Boebert has offended, frankly, a Jewish delegation touring the U.S. Capitol, a Colorado actor speaking to us who was cast in the movie Rust. She wore a T-shirt that says guns don't kill people. Alec Baldwin does. Uh, She heckled President Joe Biden during the State of the Union, just as he was about to invoke his late son. And she routinely baits transgender people with her language. Christy, does Boebert reflect the soul of Colorado's GOP in terms of character? Ryan, I believe there are so many Republicans across the state who speak for their own districts. Congresswoman Boebert is well-loved in CD3. She connects with her voters and they uh, they elected her by a wide margin in 2020. She's up for election 2022. Voters always have that choice. And I think we can look to a lot of our other statewide candidates who are uh, running to represent the entire state of Colorado and how they speak. There's no one person in the Republican Party that is the only spokesperson for the party. We are a diverse state. We have diverse districts. And I think we need to respect that in the people we choose to represent us. Do you like her rhetoric? Ryan, I know Lauren Boebert personally, and I think she is a genuine person who really wants the best for the people in her district. And I think often people are so focused on personalities and exact phrases that they don't really go look at the meat of what someone does and how they work for the people in their district. I think part of what we need to do when we talk about politics is bring the rhetoric down and talk about what people do to deliver for their districts. That's why I really encourage people to go look at the bills she runs, look at the work she's doing, look at the stakeholder meetings she's having in her district as she serves her people. And that's what we should want in any elected official. Do you want to point to perhaps one of those bills? So there's a whole list of them actually in an article published in one of the Aspen papers that I I gave comment to. And it's I couldn't tell you the number offhand, but there's a wildfire prevention bill, water rights bill, um, specifically dealing with the environmental issues on the Western Slope. Okay, I'd like to talk about another congressional district, and that's the brand new one in Colorado, the 8th Congressional District, which includes Denver's northern suburbs, stretches up to Greeley. Uh, I'll note it's the district with the highest percentage of Hispanic voters in Colorado. How would you say is the GOP gearing up to try and win it? We're absolutely thrilled about the opportunity to compete in the new Congressional District 8. It's a prime opportunity for Republicans to pick up another congressional seat in Colorado. I think it's very encouraging that it has a 38 percent Hispanic population in CD8. 
in 2020, when we did see Republicans lose statewide races in the Denver metro area, the one area we increased our vote margin was in Commerce City because of the Hispanic population in Commerce City. They came over and voted for Republicans in greater margins than they have in the past. I think we're going to see that repeated in CD8 and in other Latino populations across Colorado. The values the Hispanic community has are the values we have as a Republican Party. I have personally worked on recruiting more Hispanic leaders to run for the Republican Party, and we're just seeing so many of them find their home in our party as we talk together and really recognize our shared values. Several Republicans in the state have filed a lawsuit to try to close the party's primary to unaffiliated voters. Do you support that effort or do you think that primaries should be semi-open? So that's a lawsuit the Colorado GOP is not involved in. The people bringing that are representing specific Republicans who share that viewpoint, and I think we'll see it play out in court. So am I to understand that the party does not take a stance at all on whether primaries should be open or closed? The party's just flat out not involved in that lawsuit. We'll, mm-hmm. We will see it play out in court. Christy, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. Good to be with you. Christy Burton-Brown chairs the Colorado Republican Party. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a first-of-its-kind court case springing from the George Floyd protests. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Maria Francesca Cabrini was only 30 when she founded a religious order in northern Italy, but what she really wanted to do was go overseas. Mother Cabrini came to America in 1909 to take care of Italian immigrants, first in New York and Chicago, then in Denver. She bought some land in Golden, cheap, because it did not have water. She reportedly touched a large red rock with her cane, told her religious sisters to dig, and the spring they uncovered continues to produce water today. Cabrini established 67 schools, hospitals, and orphanages. In 1946, she became the first Italian immigrant to be recognized as a saint, soon after named Universal Patron of Immigrants. Seventy years later, Colorado replaced Columbus Day with Cabrini Day, recognizing her kindness and compassion, the country's first paid state holiday to honor a woman. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Cobal Urban and Mountain Communities. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It's been almost two years since protesters flooded the streets of downtown Denver and cities across the country in the wake of George Floyd's murder. The demonstrations lasted weeks and drew a major police response. Well, this week, a federal civil rights trial began in Denver. A group of protesters here alleges police engaged in overwhelming and unconstitutional use of force to stop their peaceful demonstrations. It's one of the first such cases in the country to make it to trial. CPR's Matt Bloom is following the proceedings and has an exclusive interview with one of the plaintiffs. Hi, Matt. Hey, Ryan. Before we get to that interview you conducted, what is significant about this trial? We've seen the city of Denver settle with protesters who were injured during the demonstrations. The city has paid out around $3 million already. We've also seen individual protesters file civil cases against the city. But what you haven't seen 
is any of these cases go in front of a jury yet, at least in Colorado. And that's significant because this case could result in not just large financial settlements, but also potentially changes within the police department. Lawyers with the ACLU and another Colorado law firm that's working on the case aren't just looking at the individual actions of police officers in this trial, but they're trying to prove the practices and policies at the highest levels of the department led to some of these excessive uses of force and violations of protesters' rights. What are some of the policies and practices under scrutiny specifically? There are, there are a lot. The plaintiff's attorneys say that DPD's leadership did not require officers to prepare use of force statements, which are these documents that officers log when they use less lethal ammunition or other means to control crowds during protests. Denver did not require all officers to activate their body-worn cameras. They did not track the number of less lethal munitions that they used during the protests, and the list goes on. But the plaintiff's argument here, the overarching argument, is that all of these practices and failings together led to a, quote, reckless deployment of weapons to respond to protesters. The trial involves a dozen plaintiffs. Uh, Obviously, many more participated in the demonstrations. So what sets this group of protesters apart? Well, these plaintiffs argue that they were peacefully protesting. They were separate from some of the more violent and destructive demonstrators who did throw rocks and water bottles at police and, and damage property around downtown Denver. And that police, without cause, physically stopped these peaceful protesters from exercising one of their most basic civil rights. And indeed, you spoke with one of the plaintiffs. Yeah, I met with Dr. Stanford Smith, and we started by talking about his experience at the protests. In 2020, he was a dental student at the University of Colorado. He now lives in Dallas. And he says he and a friend decided to join the protests right after he watched a video of George Floyd's murder online. After seeing those videos with George Floyd, man, my heart just just shattered uh, Elijah McClain. Oh, my God. I guess just those things just truly hurt me. So when I saw other people that felt moved by those events, I felt like it was an obligation for me to go. So he and a friend go to a Chiba hut on Colfax Avenue. They grab a sandwich and then wander down Colfax a little bit closer to where a large crowd of protesters had gathered. A lot of them are carrying signs. Video shows them chanting, hands up, don't shoot, uh, right in front of a line of Denver police officers. So Smith walks up to the front of this crowd and joins the chanting for about 10 minutes. Uh, Smith says that people around him were angry, they were cursing at police, but that was all. And then suddenly he hears this noise. And he heard another one, pow, pow, two of them. And then next thing you know, the crowd turns into this chaos where everybody's starting to run. The police had at that moment fired less lethal ammunition into the crowd to get it to disperse. Uh, Video evidence shows that they used pepper balls, a flashbang grenade. Smith says that this was the first of two times that day when police used force on him. The second was on the Capitol grounds a little bit later that afternoon, where he says police pepper sprayed him unprovoked as he was trying to keep the crowd calm. He even remembers fist bumping one officer right beforehand as a way to try to make peace. 
we were laughing. We made a couple jokes. Uh, it was it was a, creating a peaceful environment. Mm-hmm. I was asking, hey, I asked both sides. I was like, yo, um, let's create a place of uh, harmony. Let's mm-hmm. let's show that the world we can we can protest this. Uh, we can protest in peace. We can make our voices heard, and it can be effective without creating any violence. And then all of a sudden, like I saw something to my right. And I looked over it, and then I turned to the left because I saw something in my eye. And then as soon as I turned to the eye, my, my to the left, man, I I got sprayed with uh with pepper spray. Smith immediately runs away at this point and gets some help from another protester who tried to flush his face with water, but it didn't really work. It it felt like it felt like the fires of hell had been released upon me. The police department did not return our request for comment about Smith's specific incident or the trial overall, Ryan, but Denver City attorneys have argued this week that their use of force was justified because of how chaotic and dynamic the protests were that summer. The plaintiffs in the trial this week, including Dr. Smith, say that police needed to do a better job of distinguishing between protesters like him who were Uh, peacefully protesting, and those who were actually breaking the law. And that's where the main failure was here, in their view. Are police reform advocates paying close attention to this trial, Matt? Yes, they are. I spoke with a few, including Representative Leslie Herod, about this. She was behind several major police reform bills that were passed in the wake of the protests. She sees this case as not just a step, but a, quote, leap toward accountability. And so I'm glad that this is being called out. And I believe that this case will set precedent um, and change the way that law enforcement interacts with the community and protesters for years to come. I've heard that some advocates, of course, they're not as confident that this case will result in meaningful change. It's really up to the jury to decide whether to award protesters a monetary settlement. The judge in this case could also order specific systemic changes within the department. Um, Dr. Smith, who we just heard from, says that that's what he really wants to see. Well, and why don't we listen to more of your conversation with him? I feel like through this case, we have the opportunity to to say, you know, Denver is not going to take that. Denver, Denver, we stand for better. So that's what this case is about to me. I want to talk a little bit more about the trial. Why did you decide to join the suit and, and go forward? I think that it's I think that this is a time that we can actually stand up together as a community and use the judiciary system to be able to make a difference. And so this was my opportunity of protesting safely within a courtroom. It's just the continuation of my protest. I've heard a lot this week in lawyers opening arguments specifically that the goal here is to hold the department accountable for its actions during the protests. What does that look like to you? What does that mean to you? Well, to me, I don't want anybody to have to go through anything that I've, I went through and, and several and, and many others, uh, protesters that were there that were injured. That's what it looks like to me. It looks like a, a, a way, an avenue to create a place that we can we can protest in peacefully and get our word here. That's 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 what it sound looks like to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The defense for the city has said that police were confronted with 
a lot during the protests that there was an unprecedented amount of people to respond to in the wake of the protests and that the anger is justified too. The defense said that. Do you sympathize at all with with the police in that regard? Oh, I think they have a very tough job. I think they have a very tough job. But I also think that they have they need to be disc- discriminate against um, being a generalized population and have better discernment of what they do and how they do it. I think that um, if 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 somebody is doing something illegal, then yeah, they may need to have some type of um, reprimand or be reprimanded, but. Um, if they if if you, you can't just fire off into a crowd and when people are running just continuously excessively and maliciously shoot them in the back i do not agree with that by any means do you still plan to participate in protests in the future uh yeah man um i i it, it when something comes up that's that i feel strongly and passionately about you can catch me right there again on the front lines that's who I am, mm-hmm. and that's who I'm going to be until the day I die. And back here with Matt Bloom. Matt, what can we expect to see from the trial in the weeks ahead? This week, we've heard from testimony from plaintiffs, law enforcement experts, and members of the police department. Today, we are scheduled to hear from Commander Patrick Phelan, who led the department's response during the protests. And in the weeks ahead, next week, we can expect to hear from the city's former independent monitor, who issued a scathing report about the department's response back in 2020. Um, That could be a boon to the plaintiff's case. The judge expects the trial could last for two more weeks. All right. And you'll keep us up to date. Thanks so much. Thank you. CPR's Matt Bloom covering the federal civil rights trial that began this week in Denver. A group of protesters claims police engaged in unconstitutional use of force to thwart peaceful demonstrations following the murder of George Floyd. It is one of the first such cases in the country to make it to trial. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. COVID transmission rates, cases, and hospitalizations have dropped. The state's emergency hospital staffing guidelines and many mask restrictions have been lifted. You kind of feel like there's hope for the future, like back to normal. But some are still cautious. I don't think it's over at all. It's nice that we're able to do things like this, but it's also incredibly important to stay really safe. How Coloradans feel about this new phase of the pandemic. Read the story and see pictures at CPR.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Jazzman Ron Miles was an internationally known trumpeter, cornetist, and composer, a music educator as well. He died Tuesday at age 58. I most recently spoke with Ron Miles during the 2020 Colorado Matters holiday extravaganza, and we spoke of his dream come true. You grew up listening to records on the Blue Note label, Luminaries like John Coltrane, Miles Davis, Sonny Rollins. Now you have a Blue Note album. It's called Rainbow Sign. How does that feel? Well, it's amazing to think at my age that I would get a chance to record for such a legendary label. 
I feel honored to be part of that group of musicians, and I hope that audiences will feel me a worthy uh, member of the club. Oh, do you still have some imposter syndrome, Ron Miles? I, I do have a bit of imposter syndrome. <laughs> when I look at a John Coltrane album, I, it's not even imposter syndrome. I just know I got a lot more work to do, so <laughs> I need to get to the practice room. Even having you mention his name, I know where I will be in a half an hour is in my practice room dealing with some music. Ron Miles was humble and thoughtful, accessible to his students at Metro State University. We sat down several times over the years, including in 2017, when he was inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame and had released the album I Am A Man. That's the slogan used by striking black sanitation workers in Memphis in 1968. Let's listen back to that conversation. A little more of the background here. Martin Luther King Jr. had traveled to Memphis to support the strikers. And on April 4th, he was struck dead by an assassin's bullet. Ron Miles was just four then, but he remembers watching King's funeral on TV. And he's never forgotten the images of the striking workers and their signs proclaiming their essential humanity. I am a man. Ron, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. I want to say that this album was just chosen by the New York Times as one of the best of 2017. I am a man. What does that phrase mean to you? How does it resonate? Well, I think it has been just a, uh, something that's resonated really through my whole life about the sense about recognizing each other's humanity. I mean, I, I'm deeply, I, th- I consider myself pretty religious. And, and you know, in the New Testament, it's kind of like, you know, Jesus shows up and says, in a way, kind of like, you guys, these 10 seem to be too much for you guys to really grapple with. So let me just have one. Th- these this, tens, these 10 commandments. Yeah. Uh-huh. Why don't we just try one? Just love everybody like I've loved you. Can we just start with that? <laughs> and then we'll go to the other stuff after that. And that I feel in this time, particularly this political climate now, where there seems to be a move to diminish another's humanity. Um and 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 a kind of cynicism about that that I, I I find really really dangerous and I think we have to do everything we can to go out there and and recognize and respect each other and and start from that common place. Can you think of a time in your life where because uh, yeah, perhaps the color of your skin you you felt that you were not being treated as a man? Oh yeah, oh man, I remember right just this comes to my mind right now i remember i would go to these camps in the summer in emporia kansas and as a kid uh, as i was in high school mm. uh, the clark terry jazz camp and the first time i went it's kind of like you see both sides of it I, I didn't drive so greg gispert who's a wonderful wonderful trumpet player plays in lincoln center his dad drove greg and i out to emporia kansas in his car and it was you know we're just hanging it was so beautiful and I think I had to come home by myself, and I rode the trailways home. So the, the went, bus. The bus. And so I went to this place where they pick you up in Emporia, and I remember, like, people calling me the N-word, like it was a barrage of, I was like, I must, I must have been 17, 18, 18, I think. And then, so finally the bus shows up, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And, and so I, like, get on the bus driver, and... 
and I'm about to get on. And the bus driver calls me the N word. It's like, oh my gosh! I just finally just slump in my seat and just take this ride home. Oh. And and so, you know, so you have those kind of moments, and um, it, it, I can look back on it and just go like, man, that was was wild. And and being it's eighteen, so overt. Oh, oh my yeah, goodness! I mean, it's it just was, like, yeah, it was pretty wild. And to think, you know, you're just you know eighteen and trying to kind of factor that in. But then I had just been driven out by you know this white man and his son in the most generous way and it was so you kind of like get to see both sides of it and and you have to make a choice at that point too i mean are you gonna you have to realize that you're going to be confronted with this but you also have have had a chance to experience the other side of it quite generously so through music and through music yeah the songs on i am a man are all instrumentals so obviously no lyrics but through the music were you trying to connect the struggles of the civil rights era to today's political climate, which you have mentioned. Yeah, I think so. And also with the sense that I'm a 55, 54-year-old jazz musician. I like that you've lost <laughs> Yes, count. I've lost <laughs> count. I have, to, I have to go to my daughter's age and add 30 to it. So okay. that's because I'm 53. She's 23. Um, so I'm not Kendrick Lamar. I'm not these other visionaries who are young and and have their view. I've lived a different kind of life, and I've got kids their age. And so reflecting on this, not only in taking my life into account, but my kids' life and my kids' experiences, and through jazz music and instrumental music, trying to find a way to comment and be relevant in our time. Is it easier for them than it was for you? I don't know that it is easier. I hope it is easier in some ways mm-hmm. um, because I think that we always try and hopefully make the place a little bit better for those who come after us. But it's, but they have their own difficulties too. They live in this time where you can find out anything at any moment and, and it's right there at your disposal. And there's also lots of negative energy that comes in as well. It's almost like they take about when you get a computer in your house, it's almost like just opening the front door and telling your kids, just go on out, go out out there. You know, I'd like to talk about the uh, other musicians on the new album. The guitarist is your friend and longtime collaborator, Bill Frizzell. And I should mention that the two of you were recently inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. Uh, then there's drummer Brian Blade, pianist Jason Moran, and bassist Thomas Morgan. Uh, this is your album. You wrote all the songs and you're the band leader, but there are long stretches where you don't play a note. track called Darken My Door. And what you don't hear there is cornetist Ron Miles. Uh, that is on purpose. But what, what is it like to sort of seed this time musically over to them well, and step back? Well, for one, they're, I think they're some of the greatest musicians on the planet, so I feel like I have the best seat in the house. But, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Duke Ellington's music. And there are many songs in the Duke Ellington canon where he doesn't play a single note. Mm-hmm. And you know it's a Duke Ellington piece. Miles Davis had pieces where he's playing organ, no trumpet on it. And you still, you put the record, it's like, I think that's a Miles Davis record. <laughs> and so hopefully that, that sense that that your songwriting gives people a place to play and, and you don't feel like, it's like having a conversation. It's always good sometimes just to sit and listen 
and see if you had anything to add. And sometimes I didn't have anything at that point. Why did you want to work with these particular musicians? They're my favorite musicians on the planet. It's a dream team for me. I mean, I, they're some of my favorite musicians that have ever played this music. And I, uh, Thomas was the only one who I'd never met before. Um, but Bill suggested that Thomas would be perfect, and he was exactly right. No one plays like him. This is I again could, a bassist, Thomas bassist, Morgan. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't have even predicted what he would play even. And the bass is so important to the foundation of a piece. Oh, yes. Yeah, so a lot is riding on that person. Mm-hmm. And and he was, at, you know, we all had moments where we had to kind of go back and fix something. And Thomas, I think, was the one person who didn't have to fix anything. <laughs> <laughs> he, he played everything perfectly. I think at one point... I hate fr- people like that. I know. When, who are these people? I was like, what are you talking about? I remember uh-huh. at the one point he played something and he actually asked the, the engineer, could you move that like two seconds ahead? It was a free part. And he responded to what I played. No, two seconds later. He, but he jumped on it too soon. He felt like, could you just back that up two seconds? It, it felt like I was just on it too fast. And it's like, that's all you've got. Mm. So perfect notes and and just a beautiful musician. That's actually a track called Revolutionary Congregation and Ron, you've already mentioned that you're a very religious person. What does that title mean? Well, I always like these kind of revolutionaries in, in our kind of religious history. And I think of, of even Jesus as, as a kind of a revolutionary figure. And Dr. King and, and, and lots of folks who, who, who use this kind of spirituality as a way to advance causes for human rights and human dignity. And it's not just sitting in the back of the church quietly and and reverently, even though that's that's the way a lot of people express themselves, but there are people who are taking it to the powers that be and demanding of them that they represent what, that they be what they say they are. And I think we see that a lot these days, that people are let off the hook. They can say they're one way and not have to stand up, even in this kind of sense about sexual harassment that's happening right now. It gives us a chance to decide as a society, are we are we who we say we are? Or is that just a are these just catchphrases that we can throw out that, that don't have any responsibility behind them? There is a short film on your website about making this new album, and in it you say to be a part of the music you have to be comfortable with not knowing. Kind of a religious thought there too, right? Yeah. The unknown. But what do you mean by that musically, not knowing? Well, I think if you're really going to improvise, then you can't know what's going to happen because nothing's happened yet. And, you know, you go to school and you learn all these theories, you learn all these techniques, you know, this scale goes with this chord and blah, blah, blah. But in the end, you've got to let all that go when it comes time to make music if you want to let the music be able to be all that it can be because otherwise you're limiting it to your own reality. And so I want to open it up to beyond that. And so the kind of mystery of it is scary, but you have the possibility of going beyond what you know. I mean, if that isn't a metaphor for life, I don't know what is. Yeah. 
I want to ask you about one other song on the new album, I Am A Man. It's a lovely ballad called Mother Juggler. I just want to be in the most comfortable chair in the world, like next to a window listening to that. I hear Bill Frizzell, man, when he hits that low E string, it's like it's all over. <laughs> the guitarist. Tell me about this song. Well, um, I wrote it for my mom in, in that sense that I kind of came up in a generation where women were entering in kind of the, the workplace in mass. You know, I was born in 1963. And there's this kind of sense that that they carry the baggage of, of what mothers had been traditionally expected to do in the home and the stuff they were supposed to do at work. And no one cut them any slack out of any of those. It's mm. like you're supposed to go to work all day and make sure dinner was ready and do the laundry and all that kind of stuff. And if there and, was a moment's sort of infraction. Oh, yeah. Everybody was going to notice that. Uh-huh. Exactly. And, and, they, and my mom and moms like her were just doing it with like so much grace and and now being a parent, you look back and go like, oh my gosh, I don't see how they did that. And and I always like like titles that, that were not overly, um, uh, I guess, saccharine in a way. Because I always like Parliament and like Outcast and stuff. So Mother Juggler kind of like felt like I could kind of, it had that edge that those women have too, because they're not soft. They, they got, they, there's a lot of strength in there too. So I wanted a title that reflected that. Were you proud of your mom? Oh, extremely. My greatest hero, without a doubt. Thanks for being with us. Oh, my great pleasure. Thank you for playing the music, and thank you for all you do for the music here. Colorado Music Hall of Famer Ron Miles, speaking with me in 2017. Miles died Tuesday at age 58 from complications of a rare blood disorder. I'm Ryan Warner with producer Carla Jimenez, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.